After over a year of being stuck in our houses, a lot of us are appreciating the outdoors and our planet a little bit more. Health, the environment, and more are our focus on this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics in Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist Richard Campbell, former chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Rosemary Pennington is away. Our guest today is Leslie McClure, professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and associate dean for faculty affairs at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University. Dr. McClure does work to try to understand disparities in health, particularly racial and geographic disparities, and the role that the environment plays in them. Her methodological expertise is in the design and analysis of multi-center trials, as well as issues in what multiplicity of clinical trials, what that might mean. She is currently the director of the Coordinating Center for the Diabetes LED Network and the director of the Data Coordinating Center for the Connecting the Dots Autism Center of Excellence. Leslie, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's a delight. I've been, I've been hoping to have you join us for a while, so it's, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Uh, you've done such a, a, a great breadth of, of work. I mean, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed just reading about some of the stuff that you've done, ranging from studying youth sports like injuries and soccer to, to using virtual reality to study texting and walking. I, you know, that I've got to hear more about later. But, but, but initially, <laughs> I want to talk, we want to talk a little bit about your work on this uh, REGARDS trial, where you're doing reasons for geographic and racial differences in stroke. So can you give us just a little bit of context for that? Sure. So REGARDS is a cohort study of 30,000 people recruited across the United States uh, between 2003 and 2007, all black Americans and white Americans, who we've been following for a little over 10 years on average to try to understand why people who live in the South die from higher risk of stroke than people who live in other parts of the country, and why black people die from higher rates of stroke than, than their white counterparts. In addition, over time, we've expanded it to look at things like cognitive functioning and to look at uh, heart disease. And we have a lot of risk factors for these folks that we're studying. So we've been able to characterize them very well. And it's led to a lot of interesting science. Well, that's that that you're leaving us hanging here now. Now we got to know more about this. Uh, so, so you know, we got to unpack a little bit of this. So, some people that may not know what a cohort study is that's listening. So, if you could just say a little bit about. So, you're tracking these people over time as well. So, it has this longitudinal aspect. Could you tell a little bit more about what how these cohorts were defined and what that means? And then a little bit about you, you mentioned the cognitive functioning and heart disease as some of the endpoints that you're measuring. And you said you've got some really great variables that you're considering. Could you tell us a little bit more about those as well, please? Yeah, so a cohort study is one where you collect a lot of information at the beginning and then you follow people to see what happens to them. And we've been really fortunate to be able to follow a good proportion of those 30,000 people for quite a bit of time. And so we're essentially calling them every six months on the phone and saying, hey, how are you? How are you doing? Have you had a stroke? Have you had a heart attack? Have you experienced some other symptoms? And then every year we ask, we ask them some questions about their cognitive ability. So um, we have a short screener where we ask them about remembering three words. And then we also ask them about where they are, what day of the week it is, what month it is to test their memory. The other question you asked was about the fun variables we have. Yeah, some of the things that you've measured that you're going to be using to try to predict these different outcomes. 
Yeah, so when we started the study, we measured a lot of sort of traditional cardiovascular risk factors like their body mass index, their cholesterol, their blood pressure. Uh, but we also have the, had the ability, because we know where everyone lives, to incorporate a lot of other interesting things such that are related to where they live. So by knowing where someone lives, we can look at their neighborhood and some characteristics of their neighborhood, including the levels of pollution they might be exposed to. But also other things like uh, we can look at residential segregation and we can look at measures of, of disaster preparedness and those sorts of things that different groups characterize. Uh, we, we can look at things like the proximity to healthy food outlets or the proximity to parks uh, and see whether those are related to their risk of getting uh, to getting diseases like stroke or cardiovascular disease or whether it's re related to their memory or other cognitive measures. In doing this work, what surprised you the most so far in terms of what you're looking at? So, so I think you're going to be surprised by what surprised me the most, but <laughs> what surprised me the most was that 30,000 people were willing to participate in this study <laughs> for a check for $30. Oh, my God. So that's, wow. that's all that they got at the beginning. And they did a 45-minute interview and then they on the phone. And then they allowed a health care worker to come into their home and collect height and weight, to take their blood, to collect a urine sample, and to do an electrocardiogram. So to me, wow. that's surprising. I don't know that I would be willing to let a researcher uh, take that much of my time and also do, do that kind of data collection. And... Over time, so many people continue to be engaged with the study, and that surprises me. In terms of our research findings, what surprised me? That's a, that's a hard question. I think not a lot has been surprising. I think what's fascinating to me is that the traditional risk factors that we think about, like blood pressure and cholesterol and those biological variables, only account for a small proportion of the disease we see and only account for a small proportion of the differences we see between different groups. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's been surprising to me is that diet plays such a large role, um, which you know might be related to those, but things like proximity to healthy food stores don't play as large of a role as we would expect. I wanted to follow up too, is, is the secondhand smoking, is that part of this? study or is that yeah I was kind of interested in that for a personal level so my father smoked when I was growing up but he quit when he was 50 he lived till he was 89 so what are my chances well I, I loved smelling the smoke I never was a smoker but I loved when my dad I have a, a fond association of my dad smoking growing up well, so, so it's interesting. We found mixed uh, associations between being exposed to smoke, uh, secondhand smoke as a child with adult disease. So we looked at cardiovascular disease and stroke, and we found that there was an association with stroke later in life, but not with cardiovascular disease. However, that's on a, popula on a population level, right? So it's hard to say what that means for you individually because there's so many other risk factors that play a role. And I think that that's the challenge of these types of cohort studies where it's really difficult to look for causal associations. It's mm -hmm. really hard to say that that secondhand smoke exposure is what caused someone yeah. to have a stroke later in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, we, we, we had a guest a while ago who, who studied ideas of food deserts. 
in mm-hmm. communities, and and they were trying to think about trying to systematically do some studies. And it's it seems like that's there's some really hard questions. I mean, it's sort of there are things that have face validity when you when you look at them and you think, gosh, that really just makes a lot of sense that 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 w- that, that might matter. Mm-hmm. But then you realize, boy, it's you know that's just it's it's too uh, it's too crude a measure. It doesn't it doesn't have kind of the precision. Right. We can put a grocery store in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of healthy food outlets, but we can't guarantee that people will buy healthy foods when it's there. And so it's really hard to get at that. What we're really the crux of what we're trying to measure. So you have you started with 30,000. How how many still are participating? It's about 11,000. So, and the average age when we recruited people was about 65. Oh, okay. So, you know, some of that is sort of natural attrition, if you will. Um, people aging out because they've passed away or they're no longer able to answer the questions. But some of that is, you know, people move and we lose track of them or people simply don't want to participate anymore. Uh, but the, the, the retention's been much higher than we expected over time. Oh, that's great. I was a little shocked too when you said that you know thirty bucks to, 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 to sign right? up and continue. That's that's that really is very impressive. To, it's very to impressive. Uh, you know, you mentioned disaster preparedness as being one of the components of this. Can you talk a little bit about you know what what how do you measure that and and why did you think that might be relevant for thinking about uh, cognitive functioning or heart disease? So some of our colleagues at the CDC have measured what they call the social vulnerability index. And so it's not actually something we've measured and not something we've incorporated into regards yet, but it is something we're looking at. And it's a measure they developed to try to think about when disasters occur, what populations, what areas in the population might be most vulnerable to those disasters. And so there is some evidence, and I just worked with a colleague of mine here at Drexel to uh, submit a grant to look at disasters and the impact on people's cognition um, over time. Because there's a lot of ways that disasters, like uh, weather disasters, for instance, can impact people's health. So our, our regard sample oversampled the southern part of the United States. So we have a lot of participants in the southeastern United States. And after Hurricane Katrina, we had a good portion of participants that left Louisiana. And so we were able to do some before and after types of analyses in the cohort. Uh, Part of our team looked at that and found that there might be some changes in perceived stress, depression. So, So we know that those sorts of natural disasters that have huge impact on people's lives also impact their health. The question is, again, what, what's the actual causal factor there? So we don't really know. It's not the disaster itself. It's not the, the hurricane, but it's, it's the stress. It's the inability to access health care, inability to get your prescriptions. It's the you know, inability to even interact with your family, right? Perhaps you can't get to your parents who are elderly or, or your, you know. So, so there's a lot of factors that impact people's health that, that are sort of surprising. You asked about what's surprising that we found in regards. Yeah. Um, and I should add that all of this work is, is part of a huge team of investigators who are, who are collaborating in different ways. And that, you know, I only play a, a small role in regards, and there's a group of people across the country who are helping to answer all of these questions. So, so the focus of regards it was, you know, you had racial and geographic components. That was, you know, you build it into the name. So that was clearly a, a, a very, very key interest to, to you. Uh, could, could you give kind of a, 
you know, at this point of, of the study, this, you know, given what you've learned over time, what are some of the conclusions that relate to the title? You know, what, what kind of things have you learned about kind of racial differences and about uh, geographic differences that you would, you've, you've learned from this effort? So we've definitely learned that there's differences in uh, some access to care variables, and we think that might influence uh, some of these differences. We've, we've been able to, so first and foremost, we were able to reproduce that these differences exist. And um, so that, that's important. So we definitely see higher stroke mortality rates in the southeastern United States. We definitely see higher stroke mortality rates among black Americans relative to white Americans. We haven't found the magic bullet that explains these differences yet. Um, we're still you know, trying to piece away at it through, through novel types of analyses and, and novel types of exposures. Uh, we did find, like there were some, some primary questions about were Southerners or were Black Americans not being reported as having strokes as frequently or more frequently. And maybe it was a reporting issue or perhaps that, that there weren't more strokes occurring among black people or among Southerners, but, but more people were dying from strokes in those groups. And so, so we did eliminate that as a possible source of these differences in stroke mortality. Um, and we have been able to show that some differences in traditional risk factors, as I mentioned, explain some of this, mm -hmm. but not all of these disparities. What about diet in this study? So my colleague, Dr. Suzanne Judd, who is currently the PI of the REGARD study, she has done a lot of work looking at diet. She's a nutritional epidemiologist by training, and she has found that in her work that she's led that diet does explain some of these disparities. Um, and, and it's funny, when we started REGARDS, when you would talk to people uh, in the study, they would say, oh, I know it's going to be because we eat a lot more fried fish in this region of the country, or... You know, we use we use this kind of oil to fry our foods, or so. So I think a lot of our participants expected that diet would play mm -hmm. a large role, and we found that mm -hmm. it, it does play some role in these disparities. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Leslie McClure, chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Drexel University. So, so Leslie, do you do you report back to the the, uh, the participants some of the results? Do you, do they get kind of interim, you know, kind of this is what we've learned to date? We do. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why this cohort has been so engaged over time. So we've done a lot of creative things. We send a newsletter. They sent, they receive birthday cards for part of the study. Uh, we send holiday cards. And we have a website where we keep up to date uh, both for other researchers and for regards participants. And so we do try to share with them what we're finding. And, you know, of course, we, we acknowledge their 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 participation, because without them, obviously, we wouldn't be able to advance the science. So, so I'm a, with with Richard's permission, I'm going to change gears just a, a little bit. I mean, you, you've done too many other cool things to to not talk about some of them. I mean, yes, I, I agree. I, I got to learn a little bit more about this, particularly the the vir using virtual reality to study texting and walking. I mean, I you know, I've I've seen enough reality of people not being able to text and walk. So I'm interested about what's what was it that you were trying to study there, and what did what what was the way that you studied it? What was the question that motivated it, and what what did you learn? Okay, so I'm gonna not answer your question before I answer your question. And first, I want to say, oh, that's that's an old teacher trick. Come on now, Leslie. Come on, I'm not falling for it. Well, first thing I want to say is that one of the things that I love about being a statistician is I have a, a set of tools, right? And I can use those tools 
in a lot of different ways. And so I might have, I might be hammering a different kind of nail in different areas. And if I'm building a swing set versus if I'm building a house, but I'm still using a hammer and I still get to use those tools. And so, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to quote my academic grandfather who said that the best thing about being a statistician is that you get to play in everyone's backyard. And it's really true. I've been really fortunate to get to play in a lot of different backyards. And that's because I've had amazing collaborators. And so you asked about the virtual reality experiments. And this is something I've worked on with a collaborator, David Schwabel at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, who I've known for many years. And he started off um, trying to understand just how we can teach children to, t to cross the street more safely. Um, so, so obviously you can't just stand in a road and say, okay, cross when you think it's safe, right? Ethically, <laughs> that's just not okay. So he worked with some uh, programming yeah. folks in Iowa to develop a virtual street environment. And so he okay. created this virtual environment that he originally was using to help teach kids to cross the street safely. Okay, so all of that to get to your original question about walking in Texas. No, 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 no. You had you had to help me along here. I, 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 I didn't. I needed some needed some work here, Leslie. So this is great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So once we once we found that the virtual environment worked, we were cu curious about what other questions we could answer. And so one of the things that we've done is to bring college students into the virtual environment and tell them, okay, why don't you text and see what happens and. Uh, now don't text and we'll see what happens. And a lot of it is attention to what's going on in the environment, right? And so now we can have kids act like kids uh, and see what happens in a safe environment to do so. And so that's been really, actually that research now has even taken a step further where we're looking at using Google Glass. And so now we have the virtual environment on a cell phone and we're doing it you know, with a, with a headset. So, so now we are looking at dissemination. Can we more uh, broadly disseminate this in a way that doesn't require these giant computer monitors that have to be lugged around? And so mm -hmm. it's been a really great collaboration and a really fun set of projects to work on over time. Well, I got to, so, so the, the, the result of this work, I mean, so as, as people have been walking and texting, I, you know, what, what, have, what have you seen? You know, and, and may, is part of it just to sensitize the, the people that here's how much loss of concentration or loss of focus you have when you're, if you're texting while you're walking? Yeah, and I think there's other research that shows that like texting and driving is equivalent okay. to drinking and driving. And right. so we were, we, we had a hard time. I think the study design, and that's my fault because I'm the statistician, the study design was presented some challenges to really be able to show differences. But we were able to show that people who were texting were more distracted. Okay. So I'm going to switch questions and ask a broader, kind of a broader question of you. First, it's a two-parter. John likes when I ask two-parters. <laughs> Do I have to take uh, notes, or will I be able to remember both parts? You'll be, well, if you're like me, you just ignore the part you don't like. You, know? ah, you, you could do that. So no, no, after I ask the second question, I'll have forgotten what I asked you the first time, <laughs> so it really doesn't matter. So I like, as the journalist on the program, along with Rosemary, I always like to ask what you think of the way journalists cover your work and sta statistics in general. And the second part of that, and w maybe what they can do better, what you, because you're, you're doing the kind of work that's going to get translated to the public through journalists. The second question is, 
what can the statisticians do to better communicate to the public? The, because your work's complex, as you, and there's a lot of uncertainty involved. And people don't like uncertainty, right? So those are the two parts. And uh, if I forget, John will remember the two that I no, asked. Those are right, great John? questions. They are great <laughs> questions. And actually, we are doing a lot of work in our, in our classes now with our students to talk about uh, the importance of being able to talk about your work. And I think if, if the COVID uh, pandemic has highlighted anything, it's definitely the need for better science communication. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I get nervous when I get asked to do an interview. And I, um, I did one for Bloomberg News that was live during COVID. And I think, I don't know that I will ever do a live interview again. It really was terrifying because I am really worried about not being able to um, express what I need to express in a way that makes sense to the public. Yeah. And I think that there's the real danger of doing more harm by mm. not being able to communicate well about what we're doing as statisticians. And so, you know, in terms of what journalists can do better, it always, it always makes me more comfortable if the journalists will provide me with questions ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And then I can think about, you know, step one, how would I answer that? Right. Okay, now step two, how would I answer that if I was talking to a statistician versus the general public. And mm -hmm. that gives me time to collect my thoughts and, and think that through a little more carefully. Um, in terms of what statisticians can do, you know, we as senior people, John and I, you know, working with our students and our, our junior people to learn to communicate better, do media trainings, uh, think about the, the, the idea that what we're doing may be complex and that those complexities aren't what people wanna hear about. Uh, that we need to be able to translate what we're doing into a clear, concise message. And I can mm -hmm. tell you, during COVID, I have seen which statisticians can do that very well mm -hmm. and which ones struggle with that. Yeah. Is this, as a follow-up to, to Richard's question, uh, which, of the, which of your projects have, have kind of gathered the, the greatest amount of kind of coverage and general interest in the popular press? It's definitely the work I've done around the environment, I think. Okay. Um, I think the, the the particularly looking at environmental exposures and cognition, I think has garnered the most media attention in terms of my own specific research. But I did get asked to do many, many more interviews in the media in the last year than I ever had before. Related to your work or just? Related to COVID, related oh. to COVID. I was, um, I had several opportunities, mm -hmm. many of them I passed along to people more knowledgeable than I am about COVID or people who, um, who have had more experience doing them. But I did talk to one person about how to read, how as a layperson to read scientific literature and you know, oh. what sorts of lessons to take from it. I mentioned the Bloomberg, but, but much, more, much more my expertise as the chair of a department of epidemiology than, oh. than the research I'm doing. That's 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 amazing. That's really mm -hmm. cool. Uh, you know, I'm I'm curious about the you know I'm going to take a little bit different piece because I've as a as a soccer coach as a, a you know and, and I had three of my three of my kids played played sport and you know injury is is part of that and I I saw that you you were involved in a study of youth sport and injuries in youth sport and I just was curious if you could could talk a little bit about this and 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 you know you use this idea of a case crossover. You know, that there's the idea that there are special study designs that people might use that are important for certain things, particularly like injury. Could, could you tell us a little bit about that work and what motivated it and, and some of the things you learned? 
Sure. So this is work again with that same collaborator who's interested in teaching kids to cross the street safely. Mm. So he's in He's a psychologist who's interested in injury prevention. And he had done some work before looking at Mm -hmm. youth sports. And I don't remember exactly how this conversation went, but it came, it came, I think it was because our kids were both playing soccer at the time. And we started thinking about this transition point at different ages where more referees are on the field. And what, what, what is the role of those ref- referees and does it make the game safer? And so that was really the question we were trying to answer was in those younger age groups where there aren't three referees on the field, will the addition of referees uh, create a safer environment? So if there's more, pe- more people looking to see if penalties are happening, then perhaps there will be fewer penalties and thus perhaps fewer injuries. And so that was the, the thought process behind that. And we, we thought a long time about how could we design a study to try to get at that. Okay. And this, this case crossover was this idea. Well, it was actually a, a, a crossover. It wasn't really a case crossover because we oh. weren't looking at um, like a, a case of disease and then what happened before or after it. But we were looking at the same pairings of soccer teams. Because we wanted to try to account for that if you're playing a team at a certain skill level, how you interact on the field might be different than a, a team at a different skill level. And so we wanted to look at this crossover where team A would play team B with a with three referees on the field and mm. without three referees on the field. Um, and what we learned mm. was that it's really, really challenging to implement this kind of study in a real world setting because there were so many variables that we couldn't control, mm-hmm. like rainouts or referees having to cancel yeah. or schedules mm-hmm. getting changed. And so uh, just not even related to our hypotheses, but just the world around us that we couldn't control. Although we did see that there was some slight advantage to having multiple referees on the field. Interesting. In the end, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to be curious to see how that played out, just because, you know, you, if you get more referees, it tends to be older kids, mm-hmm. and they they're sort of flying around the field. And I, I just I was thinking that's <laughs> you know that's that whole the whole idea of confounding <laughs> seems to come out, and then experience matters in terms of officiating too. So there's some that's a that's a hard problem. That's a hard it, study and to do. And you know that the truth is there were not a lot of injuries that occurred yeah, in those yeah, younger yeah. age groups, and so then yeah. we were looking at things that might be related to injuries. So then we're even one step further down the chain there and it was really difficult well you know what leslie i'm afraid that's all the time we have today Uh, it's been just a delight to to chat with you it's been my pleasure and i really enjoyed speaking with you both oh thank you bats and stories is a partnership between miami university's departments of statistics and media journalism and film and the american statistical association you can follow us on twitter apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.